Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, welcome to the podcast. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce Katie Ivey. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Excited to be here. Katie is the RVP of sales for Demandbase. And Demandbase, as you probably know, is a leader in the account-based marketing space, pretty badass ABM platform. Today, we're here not to talk about ABM, but we're actually going to talk about diversity in the workplace, particularly diversity in sales. Before we do that, we will get to know Katie a little bit, as we always do. And the first question I have for you, Katie, is what is your favorite sales book of all time and why? I've actually been reading a ton recently on sales leadership and coaching. Hope is not a strategy is probably one of my favorite traditional sales books of all time. But one of the recent best books that I read is called Trillion Dollar Coach. Uh, If you've ever heard of Bill Campbell, he's like a legendary Silicon Valley executive and sales coach, worked with Steve Jobs, the Google guys, um, some other amazing uh, individuals out in the Valley. So if you're a sales leader, highly, highly recommend Trillion Dollar Coach. Hope is not a strategy. I know as as an expression, but I haven't read the book. So that's another one I'm going to have to check out. It's good. It's a little bit old school, uh, but the methodology in it is just fantastic, especially for young folks that are getting started in a career in sales. Uh, It's a great place to start. So other way to get to know you is either the first thing you ever remember selling or, or another one I was thinking about the other day, which is related is like the first business deal you ever closed, if you can remember that one. I don't have clear memories of selling things as a child. I know I did some fundraising and some door-to-door stuff, but literally nothing that's like burned in my mind in terms of, of something specific that I sold. One thing though that really stands out to me that's actually been pretty influential in shaping my career is when I was 17, I went and worked for a nonprofit for a couple of years before college and did a lot of fundraising for the nonprofit. So I have very distinct memories of asking people for money, uh, again, for a cause I really believed in, but I had to couple that ability to ask for money with also public speaking, which is another thing that was very outside of my comfort zone at 17. That experience, I think, is definitely what helped me land my first job in sales when I finished college. Um, So that really stands out as probably, for me, the most impactful thing that I ever sold, even though it was a little bit non-traditional. I probably am going to make you self-conscious. I'm sure I'm going to make myself self-conscious by saying this, but your your um and ah and filler word light or if not free completely, I would assume at 17, that was not the case. Wow. I just literally have a big smile on my face because you said that. It's something that I have been working on for a long time. Now that you've made me self-conscious, you'll probably notice more ums will pop in, but that's definitely been a challenge of mine over the years and something I've leaned into a lot. If you rewind it back to 17, absolutely that was not the case. You'll also notice in our conversation today, I naturally talk very quickly. I'm just fast mover, thinker, talker in most aspects of my life. If you rewind the clock back to 17, you can't imagine how fast I naturally talked. So that was another big challenge in the early days of some of the fundraising I did. You're in New York City, as I am, and we tend to talk a little bit faster in New York than elsewhere. People are are impatient with us. I love it. New York's the first place I've ever lived where there's people that walk faster than me on the street. uh, And it's so refreshing. We talked a little about voice, which I think is a good transition over to talking about diversity in sales. And one of the one of the things um, I remember reading a while back was that women are held to a much higher standard of elocution of the way that they speak than, than males are in sales. Is that something that you find is the case? 
Yeah, it's super interesting that you brought that up. It's one of the pieces that I had planned on talking about a little bit further on in our conversation. But one of the things I work with gals that join my team, especially if they're early on in their career, are things like filler words. And I agree 100%. There's this perception or concept that it's a little bit easier for a female to sound unintelligent. So things like like and ands and ums and have that little bit of a valley girl sort of tone. So I agree with you. I don't know. I haven't read the study that you're describing. Now I'm very interested. I'm going to Google it after this conversation. But I definitely think that there is just a different bar or standard that's really important for females in particular when you think about dictation and dialect and just the pace and tone at which we speak for sure. Yeah, the, the criticism is also lobbed on women that they're more prone to upspeak. And I was sitting in a meeting one day and I was, it was again after reading this study and I was in a room of about 30 people and all of them had to speak at one point. And I counted the, basically the percentage of men and the percentage of women who had the up inflection at the end of their sentences. And it was, it was basically the, an equal percentage. So it's total garbage <laughs> that there is a difference, but there's just this perception of a difference. For every person that I've ever managed, it's something that I lean in on and make them literally record aspects of their conversations, go back and analyze and listening for things like filler words and upspeak. Uh, but I, I agree with you 100%. If there's anyone out there listening who still questions whether diversity in the workplace in and of itself is a valuable thing, I did want to quote a few quick statistics. There's a McKinsey study where they looked at 366 public companies across Canada, Latin America, the UK, and the United States, and they found that companies in the top quartile for racial and ethnic diversity are 35% more likely to have financial returns above the norm for their industry. And one more stat, because we're going to talk a little bit more about gender diversity, but there's all sorts of types of diversity in the workplace. But the other one is that companies in the top quartile for gender diversity are 15% more likely to have financial returns above their respective national industry median. So if you needed statistics to believe it, there's your statistics. But I suspect most people don't need the statistics, so we can dive in at hand. Where do you want to start? Like when you think about gender diversity in the workplace and, and empowering women in the workplace, where do you like to start? It's a good question. I, I love the lead in that McKinsey study. I've read it. It's fantastic. And uh, you mentioned some really great stats, but the whole overarching theme is just the fact that diverse workplaces are so much better. We think of innovation, you think of the speed of which we're solving problems and finding new solutions and opportunities. Working with people that are different than you are makes you better as an individual and certainly from a team perspective. Um, so I love that you led with that study. It's definitely a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Um, and I am the first one to admit that obviously I see diversity through a very specific lens. I'm you know, Caucasian. I was born into a middle class family. So my experiences aren't going to tell certainly the whole story. Uh, nor would I pretend to understand, you know, the challenges faced by maybe it's women of color, LGBT community, you know, the list goes on and on from there. But I can certainly talk about being a female in a historically male dominated field. Even just thinking about the evolution of sales as a discipline, I think it's important to recognize that one, we do still have challenges when you think about just gender balance across the, the field of professional selling, if you will. Uh, Maybe interesting even just to talk a little bit about the evolution of the profession or the field that we're in. Where did sales start? Kind of how has it evolved over time? And just looking kind of at where professional selling came from, it literally evolved out of the space of insurance, like late 1800s, early 1900s. Those were like pretty much the first things that individuals sold that had any concept of sort of this recurring piece. 
I'm assuming most of the folks that listen to this podcast, though, are in the world of B2B sales, which is certainly the world that I live in. And that evolution really started in the early to mid 1900s. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Watson, but he basically determined he wanted his company, International Business Machines, IBM, to be this sales powerhouse. So when you think about the field of professional selling, we were talking about a you know, 100 years or 100 year plus window. And then if you look at the evolution of women in the workplace, it's such a short window, even comparatively speaking to that time frame. Um, so I do think that helps to set the stage. Sometimes we like to pretend maybe we don't have a challenge or a problem when it comes to gender diversity. But the fact is that women literally only started entering the workforce in mass like 50s and 60s. So very short time ago, you know, when you look at the profession in that broader lens. Um, so I think it does help to sort of set the stage and understand maybe where we've come from and why some of the gaps exist today. I can't remember the exact statistics and I was trying to find them just now, but in sales, I think women represent somewhere between, let's say 30, 30 to 40%, maybe 35%, let's say. Again, I'm just ballpark guessing based on some things that I've read. Why do you think in sales in particular, there is that women have not yet reached 50%. And I think, by the way, the statistics for sales management are even are even lower than that. That's exactly what I was going to mention. Uh, and, and I will give the caveat, I think we've come a long way and I'm so, so optimistic about the future of our profession. Uh, but for me, I do think that it starts at the top. I love that you led with some of the stats from the McKenzie study. There was a study that came out, I think it was 2014 or 2015. Uh, and it was just based around the largest companies in the Valley, in Silicon Valley. I think they looked at it was 150 to 200 companies. But the statistic that stands out, it's literally burned in my brain. I've spoke about this subject so much. And it's that 11.7% of senior sales executives within those companies were female. And then if they took it up another level as well and looked just at the biggest 15 companies. So the biggest 15 companies in Silicon Valley and of those companies, only one woman had ever held the position of a top sales executive. Um, so think chief sales officer, one out of 15. And obviously that's just one study and we're looking just at a subset there with, with Silicon Valley. But even if you change the vantage point, if you look at something like public companies, the makeup of board at public companies, I think it's 18 to 20% of board seats are held by females. So absolutely for me, I think back to your question, I think it starts at the top and we're not going to see that closer to 50-50 split until we see an evolution and a shift when we think of sales leadership, in particularly executive sales leadership. Even there, I'm wondering, I, I, I have no, no theories here, I guess, but any theories of why there's this disparity? Why are you not seeing that movement upwards? There's a lot of studies that have been done around just the, the makeup of females, the fact that we are more typically, and again, overgeneralization, but more hesitant to ask for promotions. We want to feel like we are overly qualified for an opportunity or a role before we put up our hand and say, we'll take it on. The adverse of that does not tend to be true when you think of males and their perception in the workplace and their ability to just go for something, make the ask, be really bullish in expecting that next role or that next promotion. I would assume that makes up for some of it. I think some of it also goes back to statistics earlier on in the conversation around the makeup of teams. Diverse teams are so much more successful, but the reality is we tend to gravitate naturally towards people that look like us, think like us, talk like us. So when you've got a team of sales leadership that's been primarily male dominated, the natural kind of evolution or next phase of that is you promote and pull in individuals that are your friends that happen to look quite similar to how you do. So it's a bit of a, a cycle from my experience, at least. 
let's transition over to your experience building that largely female team over at Marketo. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so recruiting more women into sales is a really interesting topic for me. I recently made the move to New York and have been hiring a lot since coming up here. And literally about 10% of the resumes that hit my desk are females. And I'm sure it's specific depending on the market that you're in and the role that you're hiring for. Uh, but I've immediately noticed the challenge of finding you know, not only females, but a truly diverse candidate pool uh, to walk through the process. There's a lot we could talk about in terms of you know creating gender neutral job descriptions, leveraging networks, figuring out how to better showcase the diverse talent that you have within your current work environment. But I did have a ton of success. So prior to joining Demandbase, I was at Marketo running a commercial sales team on the East Coast for a couple of years. And obviously sales teams have ebbs and flows and there was you know, transition in and out as we saw folks you know, join the team and get promoted. But over the course of the time that I ran a team, there roughly 85% of my team was made up by females. So I've seen some incredibly successful, just killer female sales in my career that I've had the privilege of managing. Honestly, the, the success at Marketo was a little bit of an accident. I did bring a few gals with me when I joined, and they just happened to be top performers uh, at the startup that I'd worked prior to joining Marketo. But people follow one another. And something you'll definitely notice when you talk about, you know, how do I build a more diverse work environment? Or in particular, if you're in an environment that tends to be maybe less diverse or more male dominated, you have to have the beginning of that flywheel. Females naturally want to work for who they would consider maybe badass females or really strong women. They want to be surrounded in this environment where they feel like they're going to be pushed forward or really spurred on towards excellence. That was a lot of what we experienced at Marketo, Marketo had strong female leadership, you know, at executive level and all the way down. They did a good job of celebrating those leaders and they were definitely able to create a culture where strong women thrived, which I think gave us more access to strong females and strong women throughout that time. So I guess that would be my piece of advice. If you're running you know, a male dominated team today or a less diverse team, then your first few female hires are definitely will be the hardest. But I, I guarantee if you can get those right individuals on the bus, if you will, it's going to be so worth it. Yeah, you got an incredibly important thing, which is if you want any sort of diversity in your workforce, it starts very much with the resumes that you're sourcing to begin with, right? And yep. if 10% of your resumes are you know, women or people of color, then the odds that you're going to get much different than 10% out the other side are much, much lower. Yeah. And my advice there is it, it doesn't just automatically fix itself. It's not going to be just this natural kind of rebalancing. Uh, one of the easiest things that you can do is go network. Jordan over at SalesLoft on your team has done a phenomenal job of creating a network in Atlanta. It's, it's called Close Her, but it was literally built out of this, hey, we want to create an environment where strong females have an opportunity to network with other sellers and sales leaders and talk about important topics. So as a person that's, that's a hiring manager and constantly looking to build a team, that would probably be the first place that I would start is looking for those pockets of you know, networks and groups that exist, because you're going to have to organically go source some of this talent. It's not just going to fall in your lap. I'm happy you brought up sales loft. We, this is something that the company has a humongous commitment to, and not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Case in point with our podcast, right? Everything that we do, whether it's hiring, whether it's marketing, whether it's dinners that we put on, event speakers, like everything, we're constantly thinking, or not just thinking, we constantly actually measure the diversity of the input, podcast guests and so on. Well, let, let's get a little more, uh, I guess, tactical on maybe some specific tips around setting females in sales up for success. 
Obviously, it's important that we get more women into sales, uh, but I'd argue that it's equally, if not more important, to make sure that those individuals have the tools necessary to really set them up to crush it once they get there. I think there's a few different phases of career development probably worth mentioning. I've had the opportunity to manage a number of females very early on in their career. And I think that there's there's certainly some nuances that young women in sales face that probably are a bit unique from a gender perspective. Interesting, we've already talked about tone, pace, filler words just a little bit. And I'll add the caveat here of, of course, there's going to be some generalizations. And I certainly don't think that we can put all women into one box, you know, any easier than we can put um, all men into one box. But naturally, many women do speak a bit softer. So learning to hold their own in a sales conversation uh, is really important. They have to learn how to project their voice in a different way. An easy tip that I often give individuals that are struggling with this, whether it's male or female, is to stand up when they're on the phone, especially if they have any sort of inside role. Even better, if you can be in a room where there's a window, stand up, look out the window. The volume with which you will speak and the confidence that you'll project is just night and day. Also for women, sometimes the challenge of not just projecting their voice, but being motivated to speak up when it feels uncomfortable uh, is a little bit outside of the norm. So think about things like you know, speaking up at meetings, sharing opinions, when even when you're not necessarily comfortable, um, making sure you're uncomfortable really on a regular basis. That seems to be a little bit more outside of the norm for gals. I'm not quite sure why in our makeup. I think we're conditioned really at an early age to, to blend in or fade into the background. So there's, there's something that just feels a little bit inherently unnatural about bulldozing our way into a conversation or being maybe more aggressive with our opinions. On that one, by the way, uh, I would, since you said you're a big reader, I have to presume you've read Lean In. Oh, of course. Love it. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of those things were talked about, you know, Sheryl Sandberg talked about extensively in there are things like coming to a meeting and where you sit matters, right? And for sure, you noticed that women were tending to sit, you know, if you're in like in a big room, even if there were still seats at the quote unquote main table, the younger women especially would tend to sit at the, you know, the chairs that were along the side for reasons, I guess, that you, that you cited. I think the other one was women in like in an in a open setting where questions are being asked, right? Like in a conference or something like that, you'll tend to see the men raise their hands more, more. And then even Cheryl Sandberg said she caught herself where she was just calling on the men in the room during one of the sessions and she had to catch herself and notice her own unconscious bias. Yeah. Well, since you brought up Lean In, another book, and it's it's not written specifically about gender or diversity, um, but another thing that's really important for me that I work with a lot of females on is body language. Are you familiar with Amy Cuddy or have you read her book on Of course. Christmas? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So her TED Talk is amazing. So literally, if you have seven minutes, go watch Amy Cuddy's TED Talk. But it talks all about body language and how we position ourselves. For me, at least in my experience, this is a unique challenge sometimes for women. Um, I think it has something to do, honestly, with our ever-present desire to look and feel really thin. But we make ourselves very small. We, we cross our legs. We shrink our shoulders. We literally make ourselves smaller by the body language that we use. And so Amy talks a lot about how there's this concept of power poses and how you project yourself in a room, but literally something like taking up more space, how you use your hands and your arms, not only does it actually change people's perception of you, but it mentally rewires things in terms of how you communicate and your ability to physically lean into conversations back, back to Cheryl's book. So that's another piece that I think is really relevant, especially when you've got maybe females that are earlier on in their career trying to work through some of these nuances uh, that they know are going to be important for them. I love the tip from her TED talk. And I think it was probably research that she had done herself where if you 
are about to go into an important meeting, just go into a, a private place, you know, maybe a bathroom or something like that, bathroom yeah. stall, and just like spread your arms out and stand tall. And that will actually rewire your brain to be more forthright in the meeting that you're about to walk into or the speech you're about to give. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I've literally, I've got my own power poses that I use and it's definitely helped me from a confidence uh, and just a, a tone and perception perspective as well. Yeah, that, that works for everyone. I use that too before I'm about to, <laughs> love about it. to do something important. One other thing we haven't talked about, and I think it's probably the, the last piece of maybe advice that I would give females in the field of sales in particular, it's lean on your strengths. Many women are naturally really good listeners or really perceptive, um, which is a, a trait that any seller has to spend a lot of time really cultivating. So I would encourage women to, to hone that ability, hone that ability to ask really good questions, to understand the challenges that your customers are facing, you know, think about things like reading the room, mirroring people. We tend to be acutely aware of things that we're not so naturally great at, but it's really easy sometimes to miss the stuff that, that we're just kind of hardwired to be really good at. And honestly, being an active listener and asking those really good questions is something as a sales leader is often one of the hardest things to coach or to teach. So that's another thing that I often find myself encouraging some of the women that I've managed to, to lean into and just really maximize that natural strength that they have. I would presume you have both sought out mentors and served as a mentor what advice would you give to people who are looking to find a, a strong female to help guide their career? Personally, in my own career, uh, the most impactful mentors I've had have actually been male, not female. Um, so I don't think that it's necessarily a, a gender conversation. I seek out people that I feel like are great at things that I want to be better at, uh, areas of my own career that I really want to excel. And certainly when you think about navigating, and particularly as you know, you're climbing a ladder or taking on more responsibility, I do think it's important to get perspective uh, and exposure for me, I think the more probably relevant conversation, which I think so many young people, men and women in their career tend to miss is we're wired to look for mentors and we want this, you know, coach that's going to spend all this time and give us, you know, tons of this tangible, executable advice. And sometimes that's just not realistic in every setting. Um, sometimes you're going to be lucky and have a really great boss that becomes such a natural mentor. But the piece that in particularly for women, I think is so important is finding sponsors. So individuals in your company that literally will get behind you and recommend you for that next opportunity that will push you to apply for that role to take that leap and put up our hand. Um, for me, the concept of sponsorship is just not talked about enough. And I think it's really, really important for women in sales in particular. Yeah, I love your perspective on mentorship uh, because I share it in particular. And I learned from a very sort of deep place for me, which is, uh, you know, I grew up in a single parent household with my mom and she was a teacher and she was just doing everything that she could to put a roof over our heads, food in our mouths and clothes on our back. And I felt like when I got to college, I met all these people who'd come from very privileged backgrounds and summer internships and summer jobs were secured because their, their parents hooked them up with their friends, that sort of thing. And I, I felt I wish I had the advice network that propelled these other people forward. And then I, I learned this great lesson, which was exactly what you said, is to have a league of extraordinary mentors, basically, uh, this league, you identify for each person, independent of gender, right, independent of other things, you identify for each person what they're great at. And then when you have a problem or a challenge in that area, you go to them for advice on that thing. Yeah, that's so relevant. And I'm sure that you have a lot of experience where individuals want your time or want to be mentored and coached by you. But it's interesting because quite often they'll come to conversations 
and they don't have a good lens on maybe where they're excelling and where their gaps or challenges are. So they don't necessarily know what they want from me specifically. They just know they want to be mentored and they want to spend time with me. Um, but to your point, it's incredibly relevant. If someone comes to me and says, hey, I have this one challenge or this one gap that I feel like you could really help me identify and hone and get better at, that's so actionable for me. I absolutely will spend time with that individual and give them some very tangible takeaways, you know, as opposed to this just generic, hey, I'd love for you to be my mentor and I want to be more like you as I work through my career. I used to take on folks who did want to meet regularly. I stopped doing that and I just say to them, look, here are the three or four things I'm good at. There's a bunch of things I'm not good at. And in fact, if they have problems in other areas, I generally know people who are strong in those other areas and can refer them on. I think that's something that we don't do well enough, probably all of us, is seeking out introduction and those connections as opposed to just, you know, finding people we aspire to and asking them for their time or their input. Like, hey, I'm challenged in this area. I'd love to know if you have any recommendations. Who could I talk to? What could I read? What are some things that, you know, you feel like you've seen that have worked? Connections you might be able to broker. So what's the best way for people to get in touch with you and to learn about demand base? Yeah, so LinkedIn is definitely the best way to connect with me directly. Uh, I'm assuming Jeremy will probably put a link in the bio somewhere, uh, but would love to connect there and, and chat further. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.